Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast, the podcast where we look at a sitcom from the British archives and then try and put it into some kind of historical context. And this week we are looking at 80s classic Bread. Uh, My name is Alan, with me as always is Gareth. Hello. Hello Gareth. Now, as we all know Gareth, you uh, are a little bit older than me and you in fact Mm. were in your prime in the 80s. I'm not sure prime is the right way to put it. Interestingly, (laughs) um, the time that Bread was on the air coincides with my teenage years. So it started, was it 88 it started? 86. 86, I beg your pardon. So yeah, I was 11 in 86 and then it ran until I'd kind of grown up and left school and and moved on. And what that means... 91 it ended, yeah. 91, there we go. So what that means is I remember watching, I remember when it came out, I remember it being a big BBC primetime new Carla Lane sitcom. And I remember watching it and I remember enjoying it, but... I didn't survive to the end. Uh, my tastes changed as I became a teenager and I, yeah. you know, I went off this sort of uh, broad uh, comedy. And whilst watching some of these episodes back, the early episode I watched was quite familiar. Then we watched a later episode as well and I had no recollection of that at all. So that, that was quite interesting as to where it sits in my memory. Uh, that's not surprising, I guess, especially when you're at that age. But also anything that runs for several years... I think it has an inevitable decline, uh, just in terms of audience retention, I guess. Anything has a shelf life, I suppose. I suppose that's the standard, but do you think that's universal? You know, that idea of, uh, to quote a phrase, diminishing returns. Are there exceptions to that? The one that's coming to mind is Seinfeld, which was... Hardly anyone watched the first two series, and then it became the biggest thing in the world. Are there, are there other definitely some British things that examples start of that? small and, and get bigger. Red Dwarf certainly um, got bigger as it went along. Uh, just off the top of my head, I mean the Blackadder, was... I suppose Blackadder, although that's slightly different because it was different, um, yeah, a different setup. But the first series was by far the least popular. Yeah, and, and the Office was a just a small little cult hit at first, and then you know it, it built. Some things will build slowly. Yeah, definitely. From what I could tell, Bread had a healthy audience all the way through. It had a good chunk of viewers. But, you know, like I said, it just these things sort of have to come to an end at some point. Unless it's The Simpsons and it just <laughs> carries on like a zombie. I do I do sometimes have to remind myself that The Simpsons is still a thing. You'll see something on Twitter and think, oh, The Simpsons, oh yeah, I remember those guys. Oh, <laughs> it shouldn't be, should it? <laughs> As I said, Alan, the, what I remember Bread being, it was, you know, BBC One, prime time. Mm. It was one of the biggest shows on television at the time. And it and it came with heritage and and you just said there when you were talking about it it's the new Carla Lane sitcom and I I think we can't talk about bread without talking about Carla Lane it is a Carla Lane sitcom not many people get that notoriety as a writer to say it's Carla Lane's show right so I wanted to just do a bit of background on her before we we get into the show too deep so I mean do you know much about Carla Lane off the off the top of your head like what's the cultural kind of awareness of her I know she was. I know she was from Liverpool, which is obviously relevant here. And I seem to recall, again, going back to my childhood memories, that it was it was unusual that she was a woman writing this sort mm. of show. I, I'd be interested to know, you know, was she the only woman doing this kind of thing back then? I know that she was out of the ordinary, but was it unique? Do you know what? I, I, I tried to think of some female sitcom writers. Uh, I, so this was just off the top of my head. And especially I was trying to think of, okay, female writers who aren't, 
previously established performers. So you've got, say, like Jennifer Saunders, Victoria Wood, mm. all kind of people who are known as performers and then are writing something essentially for themselves. For themselves, uh, yeah. That, that be. So kind of taking those out of the picture, off the top of my head, the people I could think of were Lisa Meyer, who was one of the writers of The Young Ones, with Rick Mail and Ben Elton. And like she hasn't really done much else. Uh, so she's a, that's a bit of an anomaly anyway. And the only other one I could think of was Susan Nixon, who wrote Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps. Okay. And not only is she a woman, but she was about 18 when they made that show. Like, that was the big thing, that, she, that it was this young person, so she, they were going to... It was BBC That was the, the launch of BBC Three, wasn't it? Where they, yeah, it was very much like, youth-orientated. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's about young people. It makes sense, but... Those were the only ones I could think of, I think. I didn't. I, I had to think about it, and the, the only ones I could remember or could come up with were, you mentioned there, Absolutely Fabulous and Dinner Ladies. And then the yeah. other ones I came up with were Miranda and Fleabag. But, but what those four things all have in common is they are written by the, the person who starred in them, the, like you say, the performer. And, and also, they were all a lot later than yeah, yeah, than Bread, than Carl yeah, I thought of... You know, Ruth Jones, Carolina Hearn, all, all performers before they were writers. Yeah. But yeah, so this is unusual. And to just look at Carla Lane's career for a second, Carla Lane's done several sitcoms, but her legacy is really built on three pillars, uh, which are the Liverbirds, Butterflies and Bread. The Liverbirds started in 1969, wow. which was, I, I believe it started as, a, as an episode of a comedy playhouse, which uh, we, we see a lot. Uh, Steptoe and Son started out in the same way, several mm-hmm. other things. And basically what happened was, this is the best I can figure out from the stories I've heard. Carla Lane was a housewife. She got married and had kids very young. I think she had two kids by the time she was 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. And so then somewhere amongst all this, she started going to uh, kind of an evening class for writers, more of a group workshop thing. They would come and bring stuff and talk about it, give feedback and all that sort of thing. And she started working with another woman in a similar situation, like a housewife called Myra Taylor. They came up with some ideas. They were working together. And somewhere along the lines, they sent it, I guess, to the BBC. The guy there, Michael Mills, who was the producer there, he got in touch with them and said, come down to London, let's have a chat. They went and did it. And... They basically walked out of this meeting with him saying, right, I want you to write a series for me. Okay. Something about two young women, write it for me. And, I mean, the Liver Birds, this is quite a quite a simple analysis of it, but it's basically the female likely lads. Yeah. And I think that's what they wanted in terms of the, the commissioners. I, I think they went, let's do the likely lads, but with women, we'll find that audience. We need some women writers. There's no such thing as women writers. Okay, well... Oh look, I've just got this thing from these two women in Liverpool. Liverpool's very popular, it's the 60s. Let's go, let's go with that. And like they had no professional experience whatsoever. And I heard Carla Lane sort of being interviewed about it, and she she kind of said, like, I think we got away with it because we didn't know how little we knew. Yeah. She it was just like, oh, that's how it happened, is it? Okay, here's the script. <laughs> and they wrote stuff for them. So we've kind we've kind of heard this before, where back in the day, so unsolicited scripts could get picked up you know you could you could literally just stick something in an envelope send it to the bbc and someone would read it at least <laughs> yeah I, I don't think that happens today does it it does seem that way obviously the 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 problem with that is we are what we look at and what we see are the success stories so maybe they're the ones that just snuck through somehow i don't know how realistic it was oh i'm sure there were a lot of nutcases uh, sending things in that didn't get picked up <laughs> but, but my point is someone was bloody reading them yeah it seems that way and 
I, I honestly don't know how it happened. I I suspect there was some kind of thing going. Let's get a woman writer, eh? Yeah. And so they went looking for something, and like this, they were just the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. But it did. It does feel. Because they didn't come with the concept of the liver birds. Go here. Here's the thing. The commission editor went to them and said, "Can you write something with two young women living in a flat together?" And they were like, "Uh, yeah." <laughs> so that was that. So that's what they did. And, and bear in mind, like I said, these were two uh, women in their thirties who had kids. They were not young women. They had not lived in a flat w- with other young women in, <laughs> in Liverpool. Like they didn't have the relevant life experience, really. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But but you're a woman. That's close enough. Yeah, exactly. And they and that that does give it a different perspective. And that's the one thing I've noticed watching some Carla Lane stuff is it's notable that it's written by a woman. I think it's it, it does feel like it's coming from a different perspective, and you have strong female central characters. Yeah, and it, it's only when you kind of watch things like butterflies and uh, liver birds that you realise how often you don't see that. I think. Yeah, we, we've heard this a lot in recent years. Complaints about. Well, particularly men writing writing female characters, but not capturing the female voice. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a real asset to to Carla Lane's work? Yes, I think it's what certainly makes her her things feel different or part of it. Um, and I suspect that it, it taps into a different demographic. I guess I don't really know, but I I think if you're watching Butterflies as a you know a forty year old housewife, it's going to speak to you in a different way to most shows. You know, it's going to speak to you in a different way that it speaks to me, I guess. <laughs> if you can relate to the character more, obviously it, it speaks to you in a different way. So L- Liver Birds uh, ran for several years. Myra Taylor, actually, uh, the, the co-writer, she dropped out after the first couple of series. I've never heard that name. What happened to her then? What became of her? She, she dropped out because she was just like, yeah, this isn't for me. This isn't the life I want. I'm going to go back and just look after my kids, basically. And it was a stressful life. You know, they were having to come down to London and, you know, it's a lot of pressure uh, out of nowhere. It's like you said, they didn't, they didn't kind of build up to mm-hmm. this as a career. And it, this is sort of speculative, I guess. But I, I suspect anyone, go, like, suddenly with a, a career thrust upon them and, like, that sort of pressure, you're going to have doubts. You're going you're gonna to have worries about that. And, like, oh, God, should, am I neglecting my family or that sort of thing? Mm. I think everyone's going to feel that. But in the culture of it, if you're a man, a young man in his 20s to getting his career started, it's just like, well, no, just get it done, plough through it. If you're a woman in her 30s with young kids at home and you express those doubts, everyone goes, well, yeah, you should look after... This is the 60s, bear in mind. Yeah, look after your kids. Yeah, forget the career. Look after your kids. And I think perhaps it's easier to to just go down that path. I think, I think we still see that. You know, you see female artists of all kinds being asked, you know, how do you balance your career with having kids? And obviously they don't ask male artists that. But I would mm, imagine yeah. in 1969 that was even more pronounced. Yeah, yeah. And we will see it later. I mean, Jilly Coleman, who was the first Avaline in Bread, left the show because she was having kids. So yeah, though, basically what happened was Carla Lane carried on writing the series on her own. There were... They did bring in a couple of writers to write some episodes, uh, a male writing team, and people generally didn't like those episodes. They were not written from a female point of view and didn't work as well. And the show was very popular, had a couple of lineup changes. The uh, The classic lineup was Polly James and Nerys Hughes. They did a few series. Uh, those are the ones that everyone kind of remembers. Although, what those later series give us, because of the new character that they brought in, is a Boswell and her extended family become part of the show. They just expanded the show a little bit. So, Are you telling me you there's know, a, a Carla Lane universe? <laughs> 
<laughs> Basically, pretty much, yeah. And this new character they brought in because in the previous Live Birds they kind of have their mothers and their fathers like occasionally dropping in, and we have a whole Boswell clan like brothers and the dad and and, and stuff like that. I guess this was Carla Lane wanted to write about a family, and it's it feels like sowing the seeds here of what became bread. Yeah, and the Boswells in live in the Live Birds are different to the Boswells we see in Bread. They're not certainly not the same character or anything like that but they have all the hallmarks of it and there's definitely some relatable ideas there no no doubt about it it's interesting though you, you know you say that you can see the seeds being planted but obviously we're saying that with hindsight i wonder if yeah i wonder if that's what she was thinking or it was just she was just writing the liver birds and then later came back and thought oh i could expand that interestingly though this is a bit of a sideline i came across a sitcom called the whackers which i don't imagine you've ever Never heard, heard of, of i hadn't made in 1975 so it predates bread by a good decade and it has a lot of parallels so it's it's set in the dingle it's set in the sort of same area of liverpool and the basic setup is a, a family and the dad has been in prison for a couple of years in the first episode he's coming out of prison and so then it's like everyone having to readjust to life with him back in it again and it's got a lot of parallels so the mother of the family is this kind of harridan she's irish catholic and and she's full of guilt and she just shouts everything <laughs> they, they've got a granddad living with them angry at everything uh, a couple of young kids the kids actually who are supposed to be teenagers are played by Alison Stedman and Keith Chegwin interestingly get out Alison Stedman and Keith Chegwin <laughs> yeah together at last <laughs> <laughs> my god a young Keith Chegwin looks so young and I watched a couple of episodes, and it's much more sitcom-y. Yeah. But it, it has a surprising amount of parallels, because it, it it's different in tone, certainly. I don't Like I say, I don't think she's watched that and going, well, yeah, I like those, some of those ideas. But I think it's just working on the same character stereotypes. So, like, yes. yeah, the yeah. kind of Harridan matriarch who has to deal with everything because the man's useless. Hello there, Alan from the future here. I'm editing the episode and I thought I'd better drop this in because I actually took a closer look at The Whackers. It's on our YouTube channel. Uh, I'm doing a sort of forgotten sitcom series in which I look at older shows that have uh, been lost to time somewhat. And I've done a big close-up look on The Whackers. So go and check that out on YouTube. The channel is British Sitcom History. But if you search for the Whackers Forgotten Sitcoms, I'm sure it'll come up because there's not a lot of stuff out there about the Whackers. But go and check that out. Just did a bit more of an in-depth analysis of it. And now back to bread. I get the impression that watching Carla Lane's stuff, her writing is quite personal. It does feel like she's writing what she knows, which is fine. You know, that makes sense. But I'm not sure how conscious it all is like how much she's just writing what she knows and that gives us these characters or how much she's going right i want to write this character because of this i want to create this ambiguity here mm. we'll get into this okay well let's let's move on from the live birds then so butterflies was the second pillar so just timing wise when did that when did that happen uh 1978 to 83 which is pretty much straight off the back of live birds Okay. But like I said, Live Birds was sort of sputtering to an end. I think it was fine. It was like successful, but it ran for nine years. That's a long time. They actually did a, they did a brief revival of Live Birds in 1996. 
uh, where these sort of these characters are now fifty years old and yeah, and st- it didn't do get much traction. So you know, just uh, I say I remember it. I remember it happening. I don't think I watched it. And uh, but you know, the important thing about the Live Birds is that you were seeing these women being represented in a way that they just totally weren't at the time. And butterflies essentially did the same thing. Carla Lane went to the, the producers of BBC and said, "I want to write a, a show about a married woman who is considering having an affair." They said that's disgraceful. We can't have that on the BBC. <laughs> so she wrote it anyway, or she wrote an episode and, and, and sent it to them and said, okay, we like it. Yeah, do it. let's do it. So she won them over. Um, but that just gives you an idea that this is quite a controversial idea. So Butterflies, for anyone who doesn't know, is about a, a woman named Rhea, played by Wendy Craig. She's contently married, I guess. Happily married is a bit of a stretch. She's just, they've been married for 20 years. They've got two grown up kids. Uh, well, sort of late teen kids. It was Nick Lindhurst, wasn't it, before? On Nicholas Lindhurst, yeah. One of his first real name-making roles. In fact, Jeffrey Palmer, who plays the husband, is one of his yeah. early, like, that made him a, a household a, name. A British role. sitcom stalwart. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to do a whole episode on Nicholas Lindhurst. Like, <laughs> we'll yeah. chart his whole career or something. He, like, it's sort of a, a crucial element that she never has an affair. She never kind of goes through with it. But this is what I meant by the ambiguity of Carla Lane's writing the ambiguity of Carla Lane's characters. It's not simple black and white characters. The main character in Butterflies is happy. She's content. She has everything that you're supposed to want. Mm. A husband with a, a nice job and, and kids that are kind of doing their own thing, okay? They're not perhaps the great achievers that she would have liked them to be, but, you know. But then she's tempted when she just meets a, another man who... Uh, he is a temptation, and perhaps just the excitement of that is the temptation. Yeah. And I think I see a a lot of that in bread, these unspoken ambiguities. And I don't know how much is that is just coming from Carla Lane's life experience. Like when she wrote Butterfly, she she just basically divorced her husband. I think she'd had an affair. Oh, I see. And she'd just gone through a divorce. And the other shows that she wrote, so Solo, which is about a, a woman breaking up, up from her partner and sort of having to find her independence and find herself. Mm. Uh, the Mistress, which is about a woman having uh, not having an affair, but seeing a man who is married. So she is right. the other woman. The Mistress, yeah. And, and sort of dealing with that. Again, both shows written really from a female perspective and potentially controversial subjects. You know, in Solo... And are they they comedies as well? Yeah, yeah. Well... Yes, by Carla Lane comedies. Yes, sitcoms. Sure. We'll get into that. Yeah. And, and so Felicity Kendall in Solo, you know, they, you have her, and throughout that first series, her and the partner, they split up, and then, you know, like, they're getting back together. It's like, oh, now we don't live together. We actually get on better, and then they try living together again, and it doesn't work. And it, this is, in the early 80s, this is still quite a, a modern idea, I think, that, that you you could be happy with someone, but not happy with them as well. Yes. And that's a lot of what happens in Carla Lane's story stuff just questioning those norms questioning the kind of the structures of of life and there's always a mother character who is more traditional who is like going no no you need a man you know you need to you need to settle down that's the common theme i see through carla lane stuff and this is a woman who's born in 1928 you know she is 
but certainly by our standards, the older generation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, married and had kids by the time she was 20. And I think a lot of it is her questioning those things, questioning the things she's done. And obviously, is she just due to circumstances of her becoming a writer, she did break out from that routine somewhat. And if she hadn't become a writer, would something else have happened? Would she still have been unhappy? Would she still have ended up getting divorced or whatever? Would You know, obviously, she, her life changed and she... She, you know, she had to go down to that London and, <laughs> and yeah. all sorts of new experiences, I'm sure. But like a lot of that is speculation, obviously, on my part. But I think it's there in the material. And I also do think it's a little bit dangerous to read too much into a, a creator from from what they produce. Because ultimately, it's not a pure expression of self, is it? You're writing something no, for a demographic. And so I, th- I, so I don't want to go too kind of deep into it. But you can see it there. You look at Carla Lane's stuff. It's there's some very common themes. Well, let's shall we move on to bread? Yeah, so that's quite a lot of kind of backstory on Carla mm. Lane, but she is a fascinating character, and yeah, just an anomaly, really. Uh, as I said, my memory when bread was launched, it was very much marketed as a Carla Lane comedy. It, mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't marketed as Jean Boat stars in bread. It was Carla mm. Lane's bread. So she clearly yeah. in 1986 had a name, had a reputation, and was marketable. Yeah, definitely, and it only been a few years since Butterflies has ended and in that time yeah like Don Solo and The Mistress they never went really big they're not going to be like really well remembered in time but they were Carla Lane sitcoms that people Mm. watched at the time you know she was yeah definitely a known entity by the time Bread comes along bear in mind when when Bread started Carla Lane would have been in her late 50s and I hadn't quite got that into my head until I was, till I was started, did a bit more research on this. It's just one of those things in, like, my mental image of Carla Lane, I guess, is someone younger. But that puts her right in the demographic of the mum in Bread. Yeah. If you're thinking, like, where where's her perspective coming from? That just sort of shifted my idea of it slightly when I worked that out. Because, I guess, if, if we're just going to get into it, I find Nellie, the mum of the Boswells, one of the most interesting characters, but difficult character. Definitely. So before we just sort of jump into it, I mean, well, where do we start with bread? <laughs> well, perhaps we should explain that for this episode, we've watched... Specifically, we watched an episode from series three, but then yeah. we also watched for this discussion the very first and the very last episode, just to kind of get some yeah. contrast. Obviously, I'm bringing into it my memories as well. But my mm-hmm. my impression of Mam, I'm going to call her Mam, not Nelly. My yeah. impression of of Mam throughout was she's a bit of a battle axe. She looks after the family, and she's the the you know the lioness. Mm. There's no there's no real affection. Any love is expressed in a very hard way. Yeah. This is part of my problem with the whole show. She, as a character, is just so hateful and yeah. negative. I just, I do not like her at all. <laughs> as a, like, as a viewer looking in, I can't understand how anyone in her family likes her. And it really starts to hang on this concept of family. It's family bond. I don't think it questions enough breaking away from that. Yeah, the family are bonded by, not by loyalty and love, but but by fear, almost. They, they, they're mm. scared to leave her. And yeah. when we first meet them, the youngest, Billy, you know, he's got a girlfriend over the road and they, they don't like that. They don't trust this outsider. He should be here with us, not over there with her. There's almost this yeah. fear that the, the kids will go out into the world and learn that there's more and they'll leave her. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. When I first watched Bread and I sort of like, you know, you go through the whole box set and whatever. No, you go through the whole box set. No, nobody else does that. 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't like her, and yeah, exactly what you're just saying. She she's keeping them there because she has nothing else, and she's emotionally manipulative. She blackmails them all the time. So I just didn't like it. I don't like. I don't like her. I don't like the show. But I think there is more to it than that. I think that's deliberate. I don't know how conscious it is, but I think that is Carla Lane perhaps writing a character she knows, perhaps something that's really related to her own mother or herself. She sees her behaviour towards her kids. I think she's questioning those ideas. My my problem, I, I think, is that they never really get questioned enough. Like, I want to see the conflict of them pushing back. And we do get that, but it's just not enough for me. And it's always just so kind of consistently, no, you come back to your mum. You do as your mum says. Yeah. And I just don't like that. But it's a realistic representation of a family dynamic, I think. But is it realistic that you would have... How, how many kids is it? One, two, three, four, five kids... All adults, all at the start of it, mm. they're in their 20s and they get older yeah. and they're all still living under that one roof. That, I'm not sure that happens. Not in those days. I think people got married much younger and kind of moved on, didn't they, a lot younger. But yeah, I guess realism is not necessarily a crucial aspect, I guess. Mm. But I think the the idea of this is a slightly exaggerated character, an exaggerated family. But that's comedy, isn't it? I guess that's you're not trying to go for normal and reality particularly. But it's very realistic. It's reality-based. Yes, I know what you're saying. It's it's not crazy it's, it's not, not yeah it's not a broad sitcom it's not yeah you know mrs brown's boys or whatever let's uh shall we have a look at the characters and sort of get a, a... yeah well we might as well we've talked about ma'am so let's talk about the the, the kids and i have to say i, I don't want to preempt this discussion but i'm going to i don't really like any of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, there's a real flaw with the show i didn't i didn't enjoy spending time with any of them some of them were yeah. downright hateful <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I agree generally. Yeah, I think that is uh, part of the problem. And one of my problems as well is, obviously, like I said, I was w- watching a lot of episodes back to back. I think watching this weekly would have been a lot easier to take because when you're uh-huh. watching a lot of episodes at once, it is just relentless. It's yeah. extremely repetitive. They get into the same arguments over and over again. They get into the same kind of basic plot lines over and over again. And it's just so negative and shouting and it's, it is difficult to watch it. Can I ask you, Alan, that, that, this might be a bit of a tangent, but do you think that is a problem with, with the sort of box set way of watching things these days? I was watching, I've just recently watched the second series of Afterlife and, and I, I had this exact same complaint that it felt like the same episode every week. And mm. I think that might be just because I watched them all in four days. If I watched one a week, I might have enjoyed it more. Yeah, definitely. I think it definitely is, especially when you go back to something that was not written with that in mind. I mean, you could argue that Afterlife, they know full well it's going to be dropped in one go and people are going to binge it. So you might want to alter your writing to work with that, but that's more easily said than done. Yeah, I do think that is a problem, especially Bread is a bit more serialised, but a classic episodic sitcom, say a dad's army or whatever, the whole point of the sitcom is it's the status quo. Every week everything's the same and it's just like, oh, what scrapes are they getting into this week and and nowadays when they produce things not necessarily sitcoms but when you're producing something that the whole point is to grab you and and go oh my god I, well what's gonna happen now forget the credits get the next episode on it's a cliff then there's an arc isn't there, there there's a, an overarching an overarching story whereas yeah traditional sitcoms the whole point is everything stays the same and you know yeah. the, we should be repeating things we should the same things should be happening to these characters to establish their character but i do yeah. think i do think that watching things as a box set 
you view them, you experience them in a different way. Definitely, yeah. And you can be a lot more repetitive if it's just people are going to watch this once a week and they're going to watch it once. Maybe yeah. it gets repeated next year before the new series comes out. It's not designed for watching and, and yeah, it's not designed to be just watched back to back like that. I took us off at a tangent there. I'm sorry. Let's go back to the uh, Boswell children. Well, I think I just, uh, I think uh, as a relevancy there, it's part of the problem with bread for me anyway, is that it doesn't really hit those sitcom ideas. And again, this is something you'll see in Carla Lane stuff a lot. It feels much more like soap opera than sitcom. Yes. Soap opera with a few laughs. Primarily in bread, it isn't episodic. It isn't, oh, like, what's going on with Joey this week? You always got to go and find this. There is stuff like that going on. But you have these overarching storylines where the, the characters are going to relationships and this is happening, blah, blah, blah. The problem with that is it's not working to a conclusion, whereas you might do with a, a closed series. It's just happening like it is a soap like opera. Like a soap opera, yeah. And that's the feeling I get from Brett. Things are happening. The people are growing and aging. No, the people are aging, but they're not growing. Yes, there's a distinction there, yes. Well, as I said, we watched the first and the last episodes, and then we, obviously <laughs> we watched this one in series three as well. And when I watched the last episode, yeah, there was an element... Well, firstly, I mean, we'll talk about this in a minute, but there were different actors playing characters, which confused me. Mm-hmm. But th- they, were, they were still dealing with the same problems, just with different characters. Joey had a girl, and Adrian had a girl, and Billy had a girl. And it was the same problems they had in the first episode with women, just different women. Yeah, exactly. It's just the same. Nothing ever changes. Yeah. Uh, we'll get on to the last episode uh, uh, in a bit, because there are some interesting things that happen in that. Let's just briefly run through some of the characters. Uh, so, yeah, we've got the head of the family, Joey. Uh, I say head of the family, he's the eldest son, but without a, a sturdy father figure, he has become a, a kind of de facto head of the family. Yeah, he's the he's the paterfamilias, because the actual paterfamilias is buggered off. Yes. And Carla Lane says that the idea for Bread came when she saw this young man just strutting down the street, very well dressed and such poise, and... She was like, there's an interesting character. There's an interesting man. And he was kind of out of place in this working class Liverpool setting she saw him in. And that was the starting point of like, who's this character? What's his story? So that's kind of obviously where she started, played by Peter Howitt, Mm -hmm. uh, who was jobbing actor and done a lot. He had been in an episode of Solo, which was a Carla Lane sitcom made a, a couple of years before, playing basically a young, sexy guy that catches the lead's attention for one episode. Well, shall we analyse that word sexy? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, so the character of Joey is a sexy man. That is definitely how he's pitched. But I don't know. I mean, in 1986, were leather trousers sexy? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. He is a strutting peacock of a man. And I just, I find him, I find him absurd. I find him ridiculous. But I don't know whether that's just me in 2020 as a heterosexual man. Just, <laughs> I, I don't know. Was that, was that the thing in 1986? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, we see... The episode we're looking at, which is series three, episode four, there's a scene where just a random stranger in the street is watching him and she basically goes on about how he's such a pose. Look at him. He's a big pose. Yeah, that is Ken. Yeah, I know. Big pose. Yeah. Even within the show, the characters are kind of like, what an idiot. So he's very much, he's setting himself up as... You know, that sort of Peter Stringfellow type character. You know, you know, that he is he is a poser and that's but that's telling, you know. It's not about who he is, it's about who he wants to be. It's about projecting mm. an image. Because because ultimately he goes back and he lives with his mum and he 
looks after his little brothers and sisters. We're definitely supposed to like him. He's the beating heart of the family. Oh dear. Whether you do or not, it's another matter. But he is he is kind of universally does the right thing. Always yes. makes the right choice. And will make sure others do the right thing as well. Yeah. Uh, in terms of his own moral code, whether you agree with that or not. But, you know, generally... You know, he looks after his family, his loved ones, and he provides for them. And yeah. he's the father figure. Yeah, he's flawed, but he but he looks after his family. So yeah, I mean, well, I did pick a very specific episode for us to talk about, and we watched in sort of much more detail. I chose series three, episode four. Now, I chose the reason I chose this. You know, series three, it was well established. We were three years in, but what we what we get in this episode, we set up some really major things that end up running through a whole thing. We we see Lilo Lil for the first time. Oh, is this the first time she's been in it? It is. Yes, after she's been mentioned in virtually every episode. Also, we get Roxy, which becomes Joey's long running love yes. saga, and I'm pretty sure she's never even mentioned before. It's not even like hinted that he's got some lost love or something. I'm pretty sure they just dropped her in here as a as a complete character. Well, the episode starts with it's a tracking shot of some high heels stomping along the, the, the ground. Mm, yeah. And I instantly knew that was Lilo Lil. I don't know I don't yeah. know what that says, but that, well, that's obviously Lilo Lil. Who else would be wearing White high heels stilettos, in isn't it? She is a tart, uh, after She's all. She's a tart. <laughs> but bef- actually, what the episode starts with, of course, and we, we can't just let this slip by, is a very iconic theme tune. Ah, the theme tune, yes. Let's talk about the theme yeah. tune. Because it is iconic. And as soon as I pressed play, it started playing. Oh, God, yes, I remember this theme tune. Oh, I love it. And that, that thought lasted about four seconds. And, and then it changed to, this is awful. <laughs> this is a really <laughs> bad theme tune. <laughs> So it was it was much better in my memory. But what I did notice is that, is that over the closing credits, it was sung by the cast. It, it, the, the opening is as well. Oh, is it? Is it, is it? I thought it was a different yeah, version. Yeah, okay, all right. It's just, but in the in the end credits, you do, you actually have them having some individual lines where you go, buy it, sell it, the game's getting hard. Whereas on the opening credits, they're all, it's an ensemble, is it? <laughs> gotta get up, gotta get out. Gotta. Grab the world by the throat and shout. Buy it. Sell it. The game's getting hard. Cause someone's stealing you a losing card. It's it's actually really fitting. I I don't know how how much this was done like consciously, but it is. It's all them together, working together as a family. Yeah, it's a bit raucous and not particularly great. <laughs> But it's them working together, and I, I guess that's the message, isn't it? Like that. Uh, I think you're giving a lot point. of credit there. I mean, yes, all right. On that on that level, it works, but it's a terrible tune performed badly. <laughs> but it, hey, it's memorable. So. <laughs> well, that is true. That is true. And as I say, in my memory, it's a lovely little tune, and then it's just it just didn't survive contact with actually hearing it. And in, in series five, they re-recorded it because they had a couple of cast changes, so they ah, got the okay. new cast to record it as well. So they certainly stuck with it. <laughs> and of course, visually, what we have in that we each series they have a little montage of things that are from that series so it changes every year yeah. but also we've got that little ceramic chicken everyone chucks their money in the pot or which is of course another kind of iconic part of the show they all sit around the dinner table and their takings for the day from whatever nefarious dealings they've been doing they put in the family pot to help out so i think as a thing tune it really sets it up sets the scene and establishes what it is i mean the lyrics are like basically you go out there you make some money, you bring it back to look after your family. It's very straightforward, but it gets the job done. Yeah, so then, as you say, we we jump into the episode and we see, yeah, these white stilettos walking across the, the road. And from a, just from a filming point of view, 
it's not something they do a lot in the show. This low shot on the feet and, and kind of a, a slow reveal or something like that. It, and why exactly they chose to do it like that, I'm not sure. But I guess they've really built Lilo Lil up. So for anyone who's not familiar, Freddie Boswell, who's the father of family, has left and gone off with Lilo Lil, who is a local tart. With her marauding chest. Yes. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> and so then in episode three, the dad sort of comes back into the family. He's been away for three years, and that's kind of the, the starting point of this conflict that runs through the I whole see. thing. So he's so Freddie Freddy's just appeared in the episode before this one. No, no, sorry, that's uh, series one, episode three. Oh, big pardon, right, okay. So so he's established as a character, but Lilo Lil was just named. Yes, exactly. So they bring her in here, but it's not a one-off thing. We see her quite regularly after this. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting choice to bring bring her in, this nebulous other woman character. And again, I think that might be down to Carla Lane wanting to humanise the other woman, uh, the mistress, I guess. Uh, rather than it just being this concept. And I think it does help. And like I say, in terms of ambiguity of character, ambiguity of the message of the show, it's not a simple, well, she's a tart. She's the other woman. She's stolen her husband. What a terrible person. We see her as a real person, as a sympathetic character, who is also in love with Freddy and is also not getting what she wants out of him. Yeah. And there's this constant pull between them. Yeah. So we yeah, we see her, then we, we kind of cross-cut between her and... Nelly in the kitchen with Aveline uh, just doing uh, doing her thing. And Nelly's pissed off because Lila Lil sent her a letter saying, I want to come and have a chat. And fair enough, I think Nelly is quite rightly annoyed about that. <laughs> like, if the woman who stole your husband was like, oh, shall I pot round? Uh, I think that's perfectly valid. Because <laughs> most of the time she's just angry for no good reason. But then Lila Lil turns up and they actually, they have a, a, a genuine street fight. <laughs> yes. But it is a terrible, terribly choreographed fight. <laughs> I mean, I'm not expecting, you know, Hong Kong standards of Kung Fu, but it's a really badly choreographed fight. Well, you know, it's just two sort of women in their 50s. <laughs> how, how do you expect them to fight? <laughs> it, was, it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the moves they were doing. It was the, how fake the moves were. <laughs> it just, it just. The, the point is, Alan. It made me laugh. I thought it was a really funny fight. <laughs> well, I think it's supposed to be funny. That's all right. I think that's okay in a comedy. All right. And another thing we see there, the neighbors are all around, of course. And and this is something that Nell, you know, after the fact, Nelly is absolutely horrified by. Yeah. And this is something else that kind of annoys me about the character. She is completely preoccupied by what other people think of her and what the neighbors think of the family to the point where she alienates everyone. She shuns the neighbours. She thinks she looks down on them. That we are better than them. The comparison she uses when she's moaning about this, she says, "If the Queen went squabbling on on the mall, no one would respect her, would they?" That's how she sees herself. She's the Queen yes. of this street, and she's embarrassed herself. She is an arrogant character, mm. and it's the reason why she's so alone because she she pushes everyone else away. And the neighbours don't like her. We very rarely see her interacting with the neighbours, actually. And when we do, it's generally quite negative. Yeah. What about... Um, so, so at this point, she rings Joey. I need your help, Joey. I need you to come home and look mm. after me. And, mm. you know, that spoils what he's trying to do with his life. And that's a, mm. that's a lovely little example of him unable to move on because his mum always drags him back. Yeah. And that's basically Joey's character. That's what he does. And like I say, when I say that this show is very repetitive... That's all it is. And what I like about introducing the Roxy character is that you've got a reason why that's a problem. 
So all you see before this is everyone's got a problem, Joey comes and sorts it. This is the problem, Joey's going to fix it. And he occasionally has his own problems where he's in a bit of dodgy dealings and he's like got himself in a bit of trouble. But it, that's the, the concept. So by introducing Roxy, which like I said, is this particular episode, you give him a reason to want to not to do that. So w- here we establish Roxy. So the first time we see Joey, he's at the cash machine, being a big pose, as the woman <laughs> there watching yeah. him says. And he is just... I mean, for want of a better word, a prick. Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's just... he He's supposed to be charming. hes That's the idea of the character, I think. He's a very charming... He can talk his way out of anything. Silver-tongued devil, you know? But... He's actually comes across as smarmy and big-headed. So what, what impression did you get of him? Well, let me go back to the pilot episode that we watched, because there's a big mm-hmm. scene in that where he basically goes to the Dole office to sign on, yes. and we see him trying to charm the woman behind the counter. And he's, you know, he's fiddling. She knows he's fiddling. He knows she knows he's fiddling. But he mm. gets away with it. And, and as he leaves, she gives him this little sheepish grin because even though she's this hard-faced woman, he's so charming. And it was just completely unbelievable. <laughs> that is... And and this is something that runs throughout. Like that, the DHSS woman, Martina, she becomes quite a regular character. Interesting, Alan. Yeah, I, I saw her and immediately thought, God, I remember her. She must have been in other stuff. So I, I looked her up on IMDb. And actually, all she'd been in was 40-odd episodes of Bread. But I totally yeah. knew her face and I remembered her as a character. Yeah, she's sort of... Dropped in quite regularly, but then from series like series three, four, five, she's in pretty much every episode. They actually expand her character, and she ends up in a relationship with one of the Boswell. It's kind of a whole thing, but yeah, what that character really should be doing is she is the the face of DHSS. That what you saw in that first episode is very typical. Joey goes and sort of tries to sweet talk it. She knows exactly what he's doing. And then occasionally she'll say something like, oh, I'll get you one day, Joey Boswell. It's like, well, get him now. You know exactly what he's up to. He's banged to rights. He goes and he says, oh, um, we need a bit more money. Granddad's rent has been put up. So can we have another three quid a week to pay his rent? And then he says, oh, no, our, our rent's gone up as well. And then it transpires, and she's she she's aware of this. They own the granddad's house, and he's paying rent to them. Yeah. The granddad owns their house, and they're paying rent to him. Yeah. So they're both paying rent to each other and claiming it on the DHSS. Obviously, that's not allowed. Obviously, if she knows that's going on, she's going to do something about it. Like, that's literally her job. The fact, yeah, and then she, the fact that she just sort of gives him a sheepish grin, as you say, and, and lets him kind of... I walk. wonder if there was a different attitude in the mid-80s to benefit fraud. Because I was watching this thinking, this is outrageous. This is my taxes. <laughs> I don't know if that was sort of all part of the game back then. Having a character that's doing that and kind of playing the system is fine, but to make him the hero and kind of have it as this really great thing that he's doing it doesn't play and like you say maybe at the time it was different but i can't really believe it they they seem to get money for everything plus that concept raises a further question which i think perhaps the writer just didn't consider at all if they've got two as a family they've got two rents coming in from the dhss yeah as well as any other benefits they got like why are they struggling for money why why are they coppering up every week well i think you know the benefits aren't that good <laughs> you know, it's not it's not a great living yeah but if they're paying the rent like that means they've got that income coming in nice but also it means they're not paying rent so all you what you're really paying for is you know your, your food and just general life which just doesn't quite play but i think and this is entirely my reading of it i don't think it's intentional joey's playing the 
the system yeah. and putting that money in his pocket. I don't think anybody knows what's going on. That's why he's driving a Jaguar and covered in leather. <laughs> and then he comes back and drops a £20 note in the jar and everyone's like, oh, Joey, he's, he's saving the family, he's supporting us. Billy, in, in this episode, Billy says about Joey, nobody knows anything about him, where he gets his money from, where he goes, what he does, who he meets. And I thought, yeah, you're right, Billy. You're absolutely right. What is he up to? How is he, how is he <laughs> keeping himself in leather trousers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the fact that he's driving a Jag and, like, parks that on their street, it's, like, such an ostentatious thing mm. to do. He's a poser. And, yeah, he's a poser. And like I say, it's kind of like, it's presenting an image that presumably helps him make money or whatever. But, yeah, because he's always shown, and that's never questioned, really. He's always shown as the guy who comes in, saves the family, and he's always there. He's always got money when you need it. But it's never kind of shown how much of a vulgar way he does it. And they kind of, don't worry, I'll look after you, that's fine. Now, I just, that, we're well into this episode now, and that was the first time I've attempted a Scouse accent, which can only be described as insulting. <laughs> but can I ask a question here? And if I'm wrong about this, I'll be amazed. But Peter Howitt, he's very definitely not from Liverpool, is he? <laughs> no. That accent's not very good. <laughs> I saw that guy. He was walking down the street. I chased him, but it was no good. There's a whole range of Scouse accents in this show. <laughs> but some of them are... Victor Maguire, who plays Jack, he's a Scouse. He's a proper Scouse. Mm-hmm. But I don't, not many of them were. <laughs> I don't think. Well, while we're on that subject, why is Grandad from Leeds? Like, he's not even trying the accent. He is not staying here. This is a non-puff house and it's staying that way. <laughs> oh, bloody hell, what are all these Liverpool people bloody doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The granddad. So we do. We only briefly see granddad in this episode that we're looking at. So, yeah. but you get the same thing every time with granddad. He sort of says something you probably shouldn't say. You know, he speaks his mind. See how I feel. Where's me dinner? Like it's very basic character. And occasionally he gets a, a little bit of deeper meaning when he sort of wistfully thinks of his lost love who is not the woman he married and had kids with, but the woman he actually loved. But I think the granddad character works because they don't rely on him too much. It is very yeah. much just, he jumps in, does his line, says, where's my dinner, piss off, and then that's it. It's fine. It's a little gag. So I'm kind of all right with the granddad character because they just don't try and make anything of it. Well, interestingly, just to talk quickly about Kenneth Waller, who plays the granddad. He was 58 when the show started. He's playing, the character's supposed to be 75, but he's, he's, yeah, he was in his late 50s. He's only five years older than Jean Boat, who's playing Nellie Boswell, you know, his daughter. Yeah. So, yeah, one of the, again, a uh, bit like Wilford Bramble, you know, just known to play older characters. We were talking about Joey, we were talking about Peter Howitt, but they changed the actor, didn't they? Yes, that did. There's a kind of real sort of watershed moment after series four. So when series five started, there was a new Joey and a new Aveline. Two major character changes, not character changes, actor changes. They were both at the same time? Yes. They'd had one previous issue with that where Victor Maguire, who plays Jack, dropped out in season four. He wasn't there. And... I don't know exactly the circumstances around that, but they didn't replace him with an actor. They wrote him out, so the character goes to America. And they brought in a new character called Shifty, who is like their long-lost cousin who's just come out of prison. So quite a different character, but they obviously felt like eight characters isn't enough. We better put another one in. And then he's a regular in it from then on. So I don't know if they knew Victor Maguire was planning to come back, but in series five, he comes back. He basically misses the one series. And we'll get into this a bit later, but part of the problem then is they keep Shifty on and Shifty has a love interest and, and it kind of just gets more and more characters. as you Too know, many on. characters. We'll come back to that in a bit. But yeah, just to talk about the character changes. 
so yes Peter Howitt left. From what I understand, he was just like, "Look, I've done it now. It's done." You know, he became a director, what? didn't he? What, he made some. He made like genuine films. Yeah, I mean, he when he first left, I think he wanted to just go on and do other things. Like he didn't want to do the same thing over and over again. Uh, and it was at its height of its popularity. But I also like. I get the impression that even if you're in like one of the top sitcoms on the BBC, it's like you know you're not earning a lot of money. It's good regular work, but it's not well, I don't want this to be my life, you know? So maybe he just wanted to go and do other things. He did end up doing some sort of directing course through the BBC, but his first credit, as far as I can tell, directing-wise, is not TV, but it's Sliding Doors. Yeah. The 1998 film with Gwyneth Paltrow, which he wrote and directed. And then he went on to do Johnny English, I think is probably the biggest film he ah, did. Ah, yes. I knew, I knew there was something huge that he'd done. Johnny English, yeah, that was a huge film, wasn't it? Yeah, and, uh, you know... But, that, but also, quite a long time ago, what's he done since then? He's jobbing director. He's got a sturdy career. He's doing all right. Did a film recently that he wrote and starred in as well, which was, you know, he doesn't do a lot of acting now. So that was interesting. That, that's about it, really. You know, he, he doesn't really act anymore. Yeah. And then the new the new Joey they brought in was a guy called Graham Bickley. And it's a significant difference. I didn't recognize him. At all, yeah. We watched that last episode. I didn't recognise his face, um, but yeah. m- maybe it was the maybe it was the nature of the episode. But the character seemed very different as well. The character changes. Honestly, I find the second Joe. It's not the same. And like, if you're trying to compare directly, it, it, there is a, a change in the character. I find Graham Bickley a lot more likable. Mm. Uh, the Graham Bickley Joey, the second Joey. Like as we were saying with the how we were feeling about Joey, he's he's just smarmy. He's real. Like it's just you don't like him in the way I think you're supposed to. With Graham Bickley, he feels much more human and nice. He just feels like a nicer person. Yeah. I think the writing adapts to facilitate the new actor and what they're capable of. And so we start to get a bit more of a sympathetic look at him. And uh, interesting, one of the first things they do in series five, which is something that, like you say, has been a mystery. What, where's Joey get his money from? One of the first big plot points that he has to deal with is he's been caught by the tax man and we find out what he's been doing. So his business or the way he makes money is something to do with number plates. So he gets number plates from a scrapper's yard, like from the cars, uh-huh. from a mate he knows who works in a scrapper's yard and sells them on somehow. Sometimes sometimes the mystery is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always assumed he was like... Is he like a high-class escort or something? Because <laughs> he's always so well-dressed and he goes out all night. And, uh, you know, that would suit the character. It's the first time Joey shows weakness, really. I mean, perhaps the first time we really see Joey showing weaknesses with Roxy, as we're in, yes. in this episode we're looking yes. at. We do. He's, he's clearly he's clearly vulnerable. And yeah. he's very sad. He's very upset about the fact that he loved her and she left. And he's yeah. they arranged to have a date. And he sat in his car outside the restaurant waiting for her because he doesn't want to get stood up. He doesn't want her to disappear like she did before. And it, yeah, there's a real vulnerability there. And I think that's sort of the, really the first time we're seeing that. And again, it's something they bring into the character a lot more. And perhaps it's that rather than the actor that makes me like that character more later on. Yeah. But I think the character is just... The actor... Yeah, it just comes across a lot less smarmy. So I think that helps. But he's also not as cool and sexy either. Like, he, he can't, he hasn't got the swagger uh, in the same way. Interesting, Graham Brickley, who plays the second Joey, this is basically the only screen credit he's got. He's a musical theatre guy. Ah. And a musical theatre guy of some note, you know, uh, nominated for an Olivier Award. Very consistent work for decades. Is there an IMDB for the West End? <laughs> 
I don't know. It's it's much harder to find theatre credits and stuff. But he's he's so established that it's uh-huh. you know his career is well known. I, I was trying to figure out like why like why has he suddenly done this? And he, I think he's a perfectly decent enough actor in terms of getting other bits of work. I think around about in the eighties there was quite a trend for those musical theatre stars to come over and be in sitcoms. Yeah, I suppose Michael Crawford being the most obvious mm. example. That was earlier in the seventies. Yeah, I mean. But the the only real connection I could find was that he worked, uh, you know, amongst other many other things, he'd worked with the Liverpool Philharmonic and the conductor of the Liverpool, uh, composing conductor at the Liverpool Philharmonic at the time was a guy called Carl Davis, who's an American conductor. But Carl Davis was uh, married to Jean Boat, ah. who played Nelly. And I know they, they, they did something with Carla Lane at some point. They, they kind of worked on a project together. So I don't know if it was just like, uh, we need like a sexy young guy to play the new Joey. And he was like, oh, I've know this guy. <laughs> you know, that might be enough to get him in the door you know yeah, get him yeah. an audition uh, whereas he may not have been something he'd gone through previously so maybe it was just someone knew him and put him forward for it but yeah I think you know obviously they liked him enough to, to bring him in I think he works I do actually that 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 point the series 5 onwards is kind of like the, the downfall of the show when people just start to move away from it when you start changing actors and stuff like yeah. that it's not something you see too much in sitcom I think no, it's a very soapy thing isn't it it's not Coronation Street type yeah, but that but that's different because sitcoms generally you're filming for a couple of months a year and it's good regular work. So why would you throw it away? Whereas with soaps, it's so relentless yeah. that I can see why you would after a year or so and want to move on. And also they're much longer running. I mean, I I had a little think about like other other times in sitcoms where they've changed the actor but not the character. Mm-hmm. The only ones I could think of off the top of my head was um, Game On in the 90s. Remember Game On? Oh, yes. I do remember that. Yeah, that was my era. And and again, I, I rather like with uh, with Joey Boswell, it was never the same after they changed him. Yeah, yeah. It was a very... Yeah, it did affect the character quite a lot. Ben Chaplin went off to do... He um, went to be big in America, didn't he? Didn't quite play out. Very similar. Goodnight Sweetheart. Obviously, there's two female leads. He has his wife in the in the modern day and his wife in the past. And between series four and five, both the actors changed at the same time. Oh God! And I can't really quite figure out why. But yeah, they they are like. I mean, apart from Nicholas Lindhurst, basically the two main characters. I think that's got to really take you out of the realism of the time traveling sitcom. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how I deal with it. It's been too long since I saw Goodnight Sweetheart. It's probably something we'll do at some point. I think you're you're thirsty for Nicholas Lindhurst. That's twice you've said that today. (laughs) (laughs) But here's another another notable one. In Hello, Hello, they had a few changes like this, actually, towards Ah, the end. Yes, they did, yeah. Um, With the the Gestapo guy. Hair Flick, is that him? Like, like he Mm -hmm. changed in the last series. But a particularly interesting one there, an actor called Jack Haig, who was playing, like, the old man character. It is I, Leclerc. Yeah, he died. He was in his 70s, so, you know, he's an old guy. He died after series five. And so they replaced him, but they didn't replace him like for like, they said, oh, it's his brother. It's the character's brother has come. Filled exactly the same role, obviously. Uh, they got this guy called Derek Royal, and he, he was much younger. He was only 60. He was playing older. So they right. thought, well, that's a safer bet. He died six months later like of um, cancer, I think. So, like, I was like, oh, my God, now we've got to sort this out. So instead of replacing the character again, they just swapped the actor and they brought in a new actor. So they brought in a new actor to replace, to play the same character that had replaced the old character. Oh, my God. So <laughs> I, tell you what's, I tell you what's odd. When you were talking about Grandad Boswell earlier, the yeah. parallel I thought of and almost said was Leclerc in Hello, Hello, who just came in and did his one line every week and it was the same thing every yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. 
But do join us again next time where we will continue our look at bread. We will uh, finish the episode we're looking at, but also go into the other characters a little bit more. We've been very Joey heavy this episode, I think. Look at the other cast changes and we'll have a look at what happened to everyone after the show. In the meantime, do go and check out our YouTube page, British Sitcom History, where we have other sitcom-related content uh, as well as the podcast. You can listen to the podcast up there if you wish. And if you'd like to get in touch, then we are at BritComPod on Instagram and Twitter. So that's the easiest way to get in touch with us. Thank you for listening and see you next time.